Genesis 32. Let's begin reading at verse 22. The same night, he arose and took two of his wives. Now, who's the he here? That's, that's a man named Jacob. And to provide very quickly a context, and I'll fill it out a little bit later on in, in the sermon, uh, Jacob has a brother named Esau. And Esau, at this point in Jacob's life, is chasing him. And Jacob is fleeing his brother because his brother wants to kill him, which raises the question, why would his brother want to do that? We'll fill that out. So that same night, he, that is Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabin. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed, Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Fascinating story, maybe somewhat of a, uh, a perplexing story, um, but we'll, we'll unpack its meaning. Let me begin uh, right away with this question. Uh, what do you know about this man Jacob? What do you know about Jacob? You know, when you consider uh, Jacob, Jacob is like a lot of the characters that you find in the book of Genesis. A lot of these characters have uh, skeletons in the closet. Uh, I've been corresponding with a man, uh, well, not corresponding, really having discussions with a young man lately face-to-face, -face, and he started reading his Bible, and uh, um, a person did not grow up in a Christian family. He's not part of any church currently, but he's reading through the Bible. He bought himself a Bible. He's reading through the book of Genesis. And um, he, he's, he's kind of fascinated, but he's also befuddled by the book. Because he says, you know, I'm reading through this, and this is not what I'm expecting. And I said, well, what are you reading about? Well, he says, I'm, I'm reading about things like lies and deceit, and I'm reading about incest and drunkenness and rape and murder and prostitution and all that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, all this kind of stuff. I mean, he's, he's just like, why, why is that even in here? So we had a good discussion about that. And uh, Genesis is, is a wonderful book because what it does, in, in also in addition to elsewhere in the Bible, what, what the book of Genesis especially does is it lays out very, very clearly, and it does not hold any punches about human depravity. 
It's about the same kind of depravity that sometimes resides in our own lives and sometimes within our own hearts and certainly what we find in the world because we do find a number of the things that we find here in this book. But the beautiful thing about the book of Genesis when you read it is that if there is one theme that you find in the book of Genesis, it is this. Where sin abounds in human lives, in our lives, grace abounds all the more. And so what we find is we have God has his hand on his people, but his people keep tripping over themselves, and they keep falling into these things. And these are not small sins. They're very, very large sins. And yet God, because of his promises to his people, keeps taking hold of them and keeps working with them and keeps molding them and oftentimes restoring them to be the kind of people that he wants them to be. And we see that in the case of this man named Jacob. Now, again, what do you know about Jacob? Well, it's a very interesting thing. In some ways, when you read about Jacob's life, he has a heart for God. We find him praying to God. But we also find a man with many, if I would call, him the, uh, call it this, inner demons. Just things in his life, character traits that just keep working against him. So if you know anything about Jacob, you know that he's a liar. You know that he's a deceiver. You know that he's a doubter. You know that he's a trickster. And at this point in his life, Man, he has, his, he has his back up against the wall. He's in, a, he's in a, what we call a life and death situation. Why is he in a life and death situation? Well, as I explained in, before the scripture reading, what you have is you have his brother Esau, and his brother Esau is hounding Jacob and seeking to find him in order to kill him. In fact, Esau has assembled up to 400 men in order to go after Esau and find him and kill him. Now, kids, you think about 400. How many are 400? Well, what do we have here this morning? Maybe 180, 200. So what you do is you take double the amount of all these individuals, because if you want to look around and see how many are here, you take double that number, and how would you like to be the very one, like Jacob, who is fleeing for his life, is double the number here, are seeking to kill him? Well, that's what we find going on in the story, which raises a question. Why was Esau seeking Jacob in order to kill him? Well, some of you are probably familiar with the stories, but in case not, two very quick things. It was Jacob who deceived his brother Esau into handing over his birthright, which carried with it enormous privileges, but also it was Jacob who tricked his father Isaac in order to give the blessing to him rather than Esau. I'm not going to get into all the details of that. But this left uh, Esau in a very, very bad place. And so now Esau, what he's doing is he's seeking Jacob. And before he sought Jacob, Esau said to himself, when my father Isaac dies, once he's dead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go after my brother and kill him. And so now at this point in the story, this is precisely what happened, is happening. Esau is going after Jacob. And what does Jacob do? Jacob does what oftentimes you and I do. When we find ourselves in a bind, and remember, this is not one small bind, this is a life and death bind. What does he do? He's like this. Oh Lord, he says, deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau. You may not be much of a praying person as a Christian, but isn't it true that when times get difficult, and you even find this with so-called non-religious people, what happens when their backs are up or against the wall or they're facing a life and death situation? Especially those who are not Christians. Well, they cry out, oh my God, oh my God, right? And then what do they do? They do something that they normally don't do on a regular basis. They pray to God. And that's what we do too. 
We pray to God, and this is what Jacob is doing. So, after he prays, what he does is he sends a number of his flocks and herds to Esau to soften him, as if to say to Esau, I'm sorry for what I did. Maybe this will, will soften your heart toward me. Here, have, have these flocks, have these herds. But also what he does is he comes to a place that's called a river, called the River Jabbok. And what he does is he, and we read about that now in the story, it's the first thing our story says, he sends two of his wives, two female servants, 11 kids, all across this river Jabbok so that they might find safety on the other side. So he divides the camp, so to speak. So if they come after him, at least they won't be able to get his wife and kids. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know if Esau is going to come after him and kill him and then go after his wife and kids. But whatever the case, he's in a desperate situation. So he sends him across the Jabbok River, and what does he find now? He finds himself in darkness. It is night, and he is all alone. And he's got plenty of time to think. And perhaps he is thinking to himself, is my brother going to find me here alone in the dark? Or of one of the 400 men, are they going to find me? And are they going to put me to death? And after me, are they going to go after my wife and children? And it's this point in the story when he's in the dark and alone, and alone with his thoughts, that the, the story introduces a man, and it does it somewhat abruptly. There's a man who meets Jacob in the dark, and what does he do? Does he, be, does he introduce himself? Does he have a bit of a conversation with Jacob to put him at ease? No, this is a man who, all the story says, he begins wrestling with Jacob. And they wrestle not for a short time. This is not a wrestling match of maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes. But they wrestle for a long period of time. In fact, the story tells us that they wrestled all the way until the point of daybreak. Now, you imagine that if you're in Jacob's shoes and you're wrestling with this individual, you don't know what he's going to do to you. You don't know if he's going to wrestle you to the ground. You don't know if he's going to suffocate you. You don't know if he's going to break bones. You don't know if he's going to kill you. All you know is that you're fighting for your life. So he's wrestling with this individual, which raises the question then, as he's wrestling this individual, why is this person wrestling Jacob? I mean, why, why does he choose to do that of all things? Why wrestle Jacob? And the story in the beginning doesn't really tell us. But a, but a more important question would be this. Not why is he wrestling Jacob, but who is actually wrestling Jacob? Who's wrestling him? And we read that it's a man, but we don't know who this man is. He's not named. But later on, what we see in verse 28, if you have your Bibles and you take a look at that, what you see is that this is actually God who is wrestling Jacob. It's God in human form, which has led some commentators to believe that possibly this is the pre-enfleshed, pre-incarnate Christ. We don't know for sure. It's a bit of conjecture. All we know that it is ultimately God who is wrestling Jacob. There's all kinds of questions that are raised in this story then, like, the natural question after this is, why is God doing that? Why is God wrestling Jacob? And here's the reason why. Because Jacob is a man who fundamentally needs to come to the end of himself. He's a man who needs to be broken. 
Jacob is a man of deception. Jacob is a man of pride. And when you read about his life, you see that he's a man who's relatively self-sufficient. There are times when he thinks, or at least he acts, like he can live without God and live without his blessing. So God wrestles this, this strong-willed man, Jacob, and he brings him ultimately to the end of himself. You know, um, we have this kind of with our kids, don't we? You know, you, you may have three, four, five, six kids, and there's uh, some of your kids, and Joy and I have raised four children, so we see this, you know, uh, in, in our family, and, and you see that in your families, perhaps, where you, you, have, you have the kind of child, let's say, that is very amiable, and a child who responds to correction well, a child who naturally has a heart of obedience. And sometimes, you know, you can see this in the crib, or sometimes as the kid starts crawling, and they start crawling to a place where they shouldn't, and you go, ah, and, and they look up at you, and you take a look at them, and you give them this kind of eye. You don't even have to say that. You just give them the eye, and they get it, and then they move in a different direction. Sometimes you just have children like that. And then sometimes God gives you a child or two where they're dealing with issues, and it's, it's this what we call the strong-willed child. And and. and, and this, this is a child that just doesn't respond to a word or a look. This is a child that gets entrenched in certain character traits that just seem inbred from day one. And sometimes this strong-willed child, you can see it in a crib. You can see it as they're starting to crawl or when they're first starting to walk. And, 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 and what you realize is that some forms of loving correction they're just simply not responding to. And sometimes as a parent, you just almost have to take your kid. And you got to, you got to, when, when, when the little boy or little girl is, is, is young, you just kind of, you take them in, their ar- in your arms and you hold them tight. You say, no, no. And what do they do? Like, mm, mm, right, like that. It's like. Do you love that kid less? Now, you know what? Sometimes you love that kid more because you want what's best for your child. And what you want to do is somehow, by the grace of God and the wisdom of God, which we all need, you want to bring that little Johnny or that little Susie to submission so that as their lives grow older, you're not dealing with that when they're 15, 16, or 17. This is Jacob. This is Jacob. Jacob's like, God knows it. God has his promises given to Jacob, and God has his love out for Jacob. And in love, and love, he begins to wrestle this man. He begins to wrestle his own child. And he's wrestling, and he's wrestling this man for a long time. And then in wrestling Jacob, what we find is that as they're, as they're wrestling together, God takes on a wrestling move with just his finger. And he, he, all he does is he touches Jacob in a certain way. And where does he touch him? 
you read the story, where does he touch it? He doesn't touch him on the leg, so you know he's going like this. He doesn't touch him in the arm, so he's not just disabling him in some way, but in the pain, Jacob continued to wrestle. What God does is he touches him on his hip, and it's a very specific touch because what it does is it dislocates his hip. Why was God doing that? Why didn't he touch his head? Why didn't he touch his arm? Why didn't he touch his leg or his foot or, or, or any other part of the body? Why the hip? Because what God is doing is he's breaking his center of gravity. He's completely disenabling him. He's breaking his center of gravity. You know, it's interesting that when you read the Bible, you will see instances of, of individual, individuals where God breaks their center of gravity. He dislocates them. Let me give you a few very quick examples. Remember Nebuchadnezzar from the Old Testament, the king of Babylon? Well, there was a proud man. And Nebuchadnezzar one day is walking down the roof of his home or his palace, and he looks over Babylon and he says, Is this not Babylon the great? which I myself have built by the power of my majesty and for my glory. And what did God do? God, like Jacob, God subdued him. If you know the story, the Bible says he made him like an animal for seven periods of time. He reduces a king to an animal. Talk about humbling. Then you think of someone like Jonah. Kids, you know the story of Jonah? God subdued him too. God said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Because I have a mission for you there. Mission to where? To the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the ultimate enemies, the arch enemies of God's people. But God says they need the gospel. So what I want you to do is I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to call them the repentance. And what does Jonah do? Does he say, you know what? Uh, that's a hard task, but I'm willing to do it. No, what he does is he goes in the exact opposite direction to Tarshish, Spain. Gets on this boat. He's on his way. So what does God do to make the story short? God subdues him by providing a large fish to swallow him once Jonah was thrown overboard from this ship. Or you think of someone like the prodigal son who's living with his father in a house. He gets an early disbursement of his inheritance, and what does he do? He says, I don't want to hang with my father anymore. I don't want to live in my father's house. So he moves on to a far, far country, and there he squanders his inheritance. And where does he end up? In the providence of God. He ends up in a pigsty. It's exactly where God wanted him to be. So in the midst of the pigsty, he said, I have sinned against heaven, and I have sinned against my father. I will return to my father's house. Or how about this? One final one, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, we read about in the book of Acts, and read how Paul was seeking to persecute the church of Jesus Christ out of existence. He hated Jesus. He hated the church. He did everything that he could to extinguish them from reality. But Jesus had his eyes set on Saul, who later became Paul, and he subdued him. He sued him on the road to Damascus, and he blinded him so that he could rebuild Paul into the kind of evangelist and ambassador of Christ that he intended for him from all eternity, the Bible says. You see that? God sometimes is that with us. I'll get to that in just a moment, but sometimes he breaks, he just breaks our center of gravity. And what I want us to see here this morning is this, and it's a very, very important point. When God breaks Jacob, he doesn't do it to destroy him. 
but he does it to reclaim him. He humbles him in order that he might be exalted. And so they're wrestling and they're wrestling and, and, and Jacob's a fighter. He's a fighter. You see, he shows that, remember the kid? Like, ah, he's, 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 he's grappling. He's grappling with, <laughs> how'd you like to wrestle with God? No thanks. But he's doing it and he doesn't realize it, but he's grappling, he's grappling with God himself. God dislocates his hip, but he keeps grappling with God and then what happens? Jacob finally comes to the end of himself and he's clinging to God. And he says, and here's where the change takes place. He says, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Until you bless me. Ah. Now the lesson has been learned. And the Lord blesses him, and he goes on to say to Jacob, I'm going to change your name. Your name's no longer going to be Jacob, it's going to be Israel. This is significant. What does Jacob mean? Jacob means grappler, wrestler, the one who strives with God. He says, I'm going to change your name from Jacob to Israel, which means... You have striven with God. And you have prevailed. Jacob wrestler, at the very core of Jacob's name, is deceiver, pointing what he did to Esau. The Lord says, I'm changing you from that. And I'm changing you to Israel, which means... You've, you've striven with God, you've wrestled with God, and you've prevailed. And it's not that you've prevailed in the sense that you've won this match, but you have prevailed in the sense of coming to the end of yourself. So, Jacob, we could say, experiences conversion at this point. And conversion is just a turnaround. It's a 180-degree you're, you're in this direction, and you turn, and you face this direction. There's a change in him, a heart change. And sometimes, you know, in people's lives, and maybe you can identify with this, sometimes in people's lives, when they are converted, when there's an awakening, sometimes it happens very gradually and very, very smoothly. And sometimes it happens very gradually and it happens painfully. Where God, in a sense, touches your hip and he breaks your gravity, your center of gravity. We might call it a form of um, violent grace. That's why I entitled the sermon Violent Grace, because we have an example of violent grace here. Some time ago, um, I mentioned a woman, um, and I, I quoted her, and I'm going to quote her again. This is a number of months ago. A woman who was caught in deep sexual sin, and her name is uh, Rosaria Butterfield. And she, she was a woman in the midst of her life that didn't want to have much to do with God and didn't have much to do with the church. And in, a, in some ways, she grappled with God. And, and she described 
the exercise of God's violent grace in her life. And it was painful, but it was also ultimately liberating. If you put her quote up there, if you would. She said, I didn't ask to become a Christian. I didn't seek the Lord. Instead, I ran like the wind when I suspected someone would start peddling the gospel to me. But then she says, I was converted. The word conversion is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face to face with the living God. I know of only one word to describe this time-released encounter, and that is impact. Impact is, I believe, the space between the multiple car crash and the body count. And this is the kind of impact that God had with, in my life. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes you just, have, you just have this quiet awakening in your life. And other times it's just like this. It's like a, it's, it's like a car crash. It's like a train wreck. It's, it's a form of God's violent grace. Sometimes God has to assault us and wrestle us. Uh, a man named A.W. Tozer put it like this. Perhaps you've heard this author. He said this, it is doubtful whether God can bless us greatly until he has hurt us deeply. It is doubtful whether God can bless us greatly until he has hurt us deeply. And that's really true. But when God hurts us deeply, he does not do it to destroy us, but reclaim us. Such is the wonder of his grace. So as we close, I want to end with this. You may be a Jacob here this morning, and as you look on your life, you say, you know what, I think I, think I was one of those people where I was a Jacob from the crib, and I've, I have either been wrestling with God, or at the very least, I've been running away from God, and I, quite frankly, have never known a day of peace with God in all of my life because I refused to do, as I find out now from this story, I have refused to cling to God and say, I will not let you go until you bless me. And you may be here this morning and you may say, I have a different experience. Um, I have never known a day when I didn't know Jesus. And I have never known a day when I felt like I've had to wrestle with God. I know I'm not perfect. I know I struggle with my sins all the time. But I can't really ultimately identify with the vigor of this Jacob who wrestles God. But here's the thing. Deep down, and Jesus teaches us this in the gospel, deep down, aren't we all fundamentally Jacobs? Don't we all struggle with pride, with deception, and sometimes a little, and sometimes a great measure of self-sufficiency. And aren't we all in need of the grace of God? Truth be told, we all need at times for God to break our center of gravity so that we may just, just come to the end of ourselves and come to Him. In fact, you know, when you, when you, when you read the Bible, you realize this is exactly on a number of occasions, what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus calls us, like God is doing to Jacob here, Jesus says, come to me. Just come to me. In the midst of your pride or your rebellion or your, your wrestling nature, just, just come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden with your sin and all you who are just weary with wrestling with God. And he says, I will give you, it's one of the most beautiful words in the Bible, he says, I will give you rest.
No more wrestling. Jesus has come. And may we do precisely that. And as we come to Jesus, may we all collectively just take hold of him and just cling to him and say with Jacob, Lord, I'm not going to let you go. Not this time. I'm not going to let you go until you, until you bless me. Because without your blessing, I am lost and I am nothing. So let's cling to the Lord. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, if there's one thing that we desire in the midst of this pilgrim journey of ours is to let go of all our pride, all our deception, and all our self-sufficiency, and all those promptings of the heart to self-reliance, whatever it is, Lord, help us to let it go. Just simply humble ourselves and simply, oh Lord, cling to Jesus in whom we we may find rest and solace and joy, joy. So God, grant that, we pray. We all need that, Lord. Help us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.